I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And how do you process your pain? We all experience traumas, big and small, over the course of our lives, and we all deal with them differently. A painful event can often feel like a physical location, a topography stretching out ahead that needs to be traversed. And some may sprint across that landscape while others crawl. I've sometimes found myself believing I've covered real distance, only to realize I've actually been walking in circles. But the journey, however it is made, is a substantial one. Our guest this week opens up about how he has managed and manages his terrain. Jay Shapiro is a producer, writer, and documentary filmmaker. He also hosts The Dilemma Podcast, which focuses on philosophy, psychology, and politics. Jay, thanks for coming back. Thank you so much. There's a lot we're going to be going over in today's episode, which in some ways is a bit of a meta episode. I think it would be best to start off with an episode of your podcast, The Dilemma Podcast, from the beginning of season three, episode one, entitled Our Modern Disquiet. And what you learned from both the book that you cover in that episode, Why We Are Restless, and the interview that you did with co-author Benjamin Story. Would you mind giving our listeners a bit of a background of how that episode came to be, why you decided to go forward with the interview of that author, one of two co-authors, and what you learned from that conversation and the book? Yeah. Well, the book, I can't plug it highly enough. It's called Why We Are Restless. I have it on my shelf. It's less than 200 pages. I think everyone appreciates like a good deep philosophy book that's not, you know, a brick. And it's, it blew me away. So, I, you know, I've been sort of on hiatus. I quit social media, which is probably something we'll talk about. And just kind of was focusing elsewhere, not knowing when I was going to do another episode. And then I read the book. I mean, it's as simple as that where I read the book and I was sort of just blown away, just, you know, devoured it and blew through it. It traces four French thinkers, Montaigne, Pascal, Rousseau, and Tocqueville, which are names people may hear in passing, but you don't really, you know, end up spending a lot of time with. And it goes through these great French thinkers, these four thinkers, but through this same kind of conversation and it pits them almost as if they're sort of picking up the same conversation one after another and responding to each other. And it's all about this topic of the stories It's written by Ben and his wife, Jenna, who are both professors, call restlessness. But the word, and I point this out in the episode also, just feels too small for kind of what I think all those writers were talking about and even what they were hinting and teasing out through these conversations. It feels like something deeper, something more existential than just restlessness. You know, I think of like restless leg syndrome or something kind of trivial where what they're really getting at with these thinkers is that deep sense of not being able to just sit still with one's existential sort of wandering and in the chaotic world that we're in. Or of course, there is just sort of the simple like, why can't we just sit with ourselves? Why can't we just sit still? Why do we keep asking questions even though we have no hope of getting the answer? Like even a big one, like is there a God or what is the right life? It's obviously the kind of stuff I love and I just swim in those waters. They're great writers that are, are rather poetic. And you know, I love when a book, which usually happens, I think for me more when it's fiction than nonfiction, but when a nonfiction book like that can make you feel less alone in your questioning and in your seeking. I don't know. It just struck me. It did something to me. So, and it, it situated me when I say less alone, I think it situated me and I think it would do this for other people who read the book or, or follow these conversations into a, a bigger kind of 
story about what I think a lot of us are feeling and apparently have been feeling since really the 1500s. It's sort of when the book and those writers start thinking about these problems. Montaigne is where the book starts. In this modern world we're in, which, which is very, very difficult and very fast and very complex and very complicated and only getting faster and more complicated, it seems, there's almost, I think, kind of a, uh, an embarrassment or a shame about announcing one's kind of depression or dissatisfaction or just restlessness that's, you know, it just never feels like it's enough, that there's got to be more to life than, than what we're getting. I just like that the book puts that on the page in a way that you can feel that everybody struggles with this. Everybody's been struggling with this. Not that anybody has answers, but it does go through some sort of like the practical responses that these men in particular took. So, I don't know. I don't know how else to say other than I love the book. No, I think that's a pretty good summary. And it is interesting, and we'll get into this a little bit over the course of the show, how different people sort of deal with that restlessness and how our own identities and self-conceptions and careers kind of act as either conscious or subconscious guides as to how we deal with that feeling. And we talked about this a little bit, both in previous episodes and off mic, about how it seems like your instinct when it comes with dealing with either restlessness or feeling of not where to go next, that's a little tongue in cheek there, but that it manifests in your life through your work, specifically your creative work. We talked a bit about your documentary, Opposite Field, in episode 28 of the podcast. Uh, it's a 2015 documentary for anyone unfamiliar with that episode or this documentary about a group of uh, Ugandan preteens who defy adversity to become the first African team in history to qualify for the Little League World Series. And you spoke about your experiences while you were in Uganda and what you learned from watching that team both overcome odds and also run up against some, I guess you could say, diplomatic or technical hurdles that in some ways ultimately foiled them. But we haven't spoken at too much length about what actually drove you to go to Uganda and do the documentary in the first place. And I'd love to talk with you about that today. So, would you mind sharing kind of the story that led to that documentary and what your initial impetus, what your inciting incident for going out and doing that documentary was? Yeah. All right. Let me try. (laughs) Because there's the technical way. There's sort of like I think you were telling me sometimes as filmmakers, we forget that this stuff is maybe more interesting to other people. Like there's the dominoes that fell in order for me to be in the position to make this film. So let me get those out of the way first. I was working for Major League Baseball at the time in film, but doing, you know, like commercial stuff, stuff you would see on the Jumbotron in the stadium or online. It was MLB.com. So I was in baseball and I was around it. And I had been in West Africa when I was younger for a few, we've talked about that trip as well, sort of a formative trip in Ghana, West Africa, not where this film was made. And I was sitting in, at work one day and we had a studio and an interview was taking place in there. A couple of guys were coming through. It was Dave Winfield and Willie Randolph. If anybody are baseball fans, they know the names. They're Hall of Famers and baseball players retired now. But they were coming through to do an interview and they were, I saw on sort of the closed circuit TV, the interview, and they were talking about this ambassador baseball trip they were going on to Ghana, West Africa. And I, you know, was my eyes lit up. I was like, what is this? I, I know Ghana. I've, had no idea there was any baseball there. I have to learn more. And so, I found out who it was who was organizing that and I tracked him down and I met with him. 
I think it was a bit of a snake oil salesman, to be honest. I don't think a ton of baseball was actually happening there, but he, you know, there's Africa's a messy place. But through meeting him, I sort of was exposed to other people who were doing stuff with baseball in Africa. One of them was a guy working in Kenya. And then I met this guy named Richard Stanley, who was lived in Staten Island and was building baseball fields in Uganda, sent him a cold email, met with him the next day. He showed me, he was legitimately an insane person, but he showed me like a stack of Polaroid pictures basically of this ground he was breaking in Africa that he had these, you know, dreams of building this big baseball field and stuff. And there were some photos of kids playing baseball and, you know, and I made him stop and I was like, let me see those. Something's happening there. And from the moment I saw the photo, I was hooked of like, I need to go see this. I need to make a film. So the boring stuff is for a while, I was pitching it internally at Major League Baseball. They were launching a network channel. There was a lot of politics and a lot of reasons why it didn't happen in-house there. But that's why I knew about the story. But more to your question about what was happening to me in my life was I was in a relationship. I was young. It was my first relationship after college. And it ended very painfully. <laughs> it was, it was, so was this just to, to place the audience's like early mid twenties, Jay? Yeah, this is 2006, 2007, eight okay. in that area. And I was with her for a few years and it was awful. I mean, I thought I was in love, but who the hell knows what love is when you're that young. And, but it was very painful. <laughs> I don't need to like go through all the details, but there was cheating involved, cheating with a guy who was dying of cancer. <laughs> so it's incredibly weird <laughs> who ended up dying actually. It was very, just crazy. But I was going through this insane thing and it was very painful. Like every breakup is. I was young. My heart was just like trashed. I was in New York City in an apartment that was like too expensive for me. And it was feeling a little bit sort of like lost. And then my job at baseball left me. Again, boring sort of like story with it. But basically, the network launched and got a building in Secaucus, New Jersey. And I was not about to try to follow my job to Secaucus, New Jersey. So, I didn't know what I was doing. I had already made a bunch of films and stuff and and I knew about this thing in Uganda. And this is sort of where I was at the time. But I want to pause it there in this depression kind of moment I was in of sort of just spinning my wheels in New York, not knowing what to do. The weird thing about kind of depression like that is, and I know you've experienced this, is it feels like it's enough to just notice it. You know what I mean? It's like my brain is the thing generating the depression. So why can't I just sort of like yeah. stop if I notice it? But it doesn't work that way. It's beyond that. It would be that easy if you're like, oh, wait, I'm depressed. Let me just turn that off. It doesn't work that way. And I don't know the answer for everyone, but here is sort of my answer. And actually, it's another plug. So I saw this short film, The House of Small Cubes. It's a Japanese film directed by Kunio Kato, but there's no dialogue. So I actually didn't know, you know, where it was from. And it's beautiful. Go watch it. It's 12 minutes long. You can find it on YouTube. A million people have put it up there. And it's just like this. I'm going to ruin it for you, but don't worry. There's no like major spoilers here. It's this water world. It's sort of just imagine this sort of like lake that's just full of water. And there's kind of these little houses that are peeking out of the top surface of the water, like, you know, on stilts or something, picture something like that. And, you know, it sort of gets you into this world and it focuses on one of the houses and there's this old man there and he's just smoking a pipe and that's it in like a rocking chair. And then the water rises and you realize what happens in this town is the water just continually kind of rises. And when it rises enough, what you do is you build another house on top of the house that you're living in. So that's where it starts. He builds a house on top of the house and he sits in that one and smokes his pipe and you sort of learn the rules of the world. And he's just sitting there and there's sort of like a trap door in the middle of the room and it, you know, just goes down into the abyss, obviously into the water. 
and he's smoking the pipe and he just drops the pipe sort of accidentally and it goes down the hole. <laughs> and all and so he puts on sort of a scuba suit and dives down through the hole with this mission of retrieving his pipe. And you can already see where the analogy is going because he, of course, has been building houses and houses and houses on top of this spot his whole life, presumably. And now he's just going to be swimming down to get the pipe through all of the old houses. And it's beautifully done. You'll see you sort of get glimpses as he's in each house of maybe what happened there. And you get some vague story of a wife that maybe died at some point and kids that left. And, you know, you get sort of a life in reverse and sort of this almost, you know, Benjamin Button kind of moment and you get to the bottom and it's a beautiful film. You and I are both filmmakers. So maybe this is a medium that just sort of like gets us. But I saw the film and I think it was at an animation festival. And it was just like this perfect analogy for that moment of my life when I was like, that, <laughs> that's my depression right there. Like, that's how I feel. I am in a house that's underwater. And here's the crazy thing is that I knew what the house above it was. I'd sort of constructed it in my mind of making this film and going to Africa because I, I just know for me something that I need to do as I was saying, like once you say it sort of internally, like, oh, I'm depressed, I need to get out of this, that's not enough. For me, it's like I need to plunge my psychology outside of my head and put it somewhere in the world that I no longer can sort of control and I to get out of myself. And a film forces you to do that, a documentary especially. Like you have to be outside of your head, engaged with the world, you have to care about it, and you kind of can't control it because it has its own story that's evolving around you. So I just I knew intellectually that this was like a hack for my own psychology that would work. And I had built it, but I still was living in the house that was underwater and I couldn't figure out just how to get out and swim to that one and get go live in that one. And, you know, again, boring filmmaker stuff is elbowing my way through some producers that I used to work with, scrounging up a tiny bit of money to get over there. The rest is sort of history, right? You get over there. I filmed a little sizzle reel. I was able to use that to like raise money and suddenly I'm making a film and fast forward two years later, it's a crazy, crazy film. If you see it, it was very engaged. It was very in the world. I was very outside of my head. There was a very heavy moment in the story unfolding around me in this very um, crazy night when their visas get denied and then everyone thinks the story's over. And it's just this like sad moment that I was just sitting there. And I remember that moment sitting there in this tiny guest house in the middle of a ghetto in Uganda kind of having the first moment to reflect back on myself and being like, oh, like it worked. <laughs> like I'm, I made it to the other house up there. So that's the story in that film. Still, I go back to it sometimes just to watch it is just beautiful. That's where I was. So there you go. That's why I made the film. That analogy or visual metaphor of building a house on top of a house is a really interesting one because it's very specific and I don't know if everyone would relate to it. And I also wonder if it's the healthiest metaphor. I guess what I mean by that is to build a house on top of a house and then to build a house on top of that house and then to build a house on top of that house is to in some ways make grief the foundation that you never actually get to escape. Mm. Because if you're just building on top of grief, on top of grief, on top of grief, on top of grief, at least if I'm understanding that visual metaphor correctly you never truly move on because it's the root of the tree that's growing rather than, I guess you could say the visual metaphor of someone moving into a house and then leaving that house, walking down the road and then building a new house on a new foundation. Granted, I haven't seen this film, 
But was that kind of what that film was getting at? And is that how you relate to it? Or was it just the idea of building a new house? And that was what you kind of related to rather than perhaps what I'm seeing as like a deeper metaphor of never truly escaping your grief because you're always building on waterlogged houses no matter what. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, <laughs> my wife's an architect. She would be like, it's just going to collapse. <laughs> but <laughs> it's a point taken. I guess you have to see the film. I, you know, I, it's beautiful and the music's lovely. So, it just sort of feels like memory, which, yeah, I, I get what you're saying of sort of building upon a grief or a tragedy is probably, you know, a bad way to put it rather than sort of just escaping it or, or a phoenix rising from the ashes. But maybe it's something about finding a place for that grief in a story that you'll never – you can escape mentally and psychologically, but it won't erase that it happened. And maybe it just places it somewhere where it's somehow, I don't know, safe. It, you know, for better or worse, it leads to the next phase of your life, I suppose. I don't know. The way the film is done, it feels almost like a new house. Maybe that's the way to put it. It feels like a new self, a new house, a new, you know, a new place, a really a new place, but it's mental. I don't know. People who have been through grief, I'm curious, or even like we're saying, even just a breakup, I've just about everyone's felt what I felt there. How they think about it now, what memory really means to them, it's very, very complicated. I don't know how to answer it. It's a good thing. I'm curious what you, th- what you think after you see the film. This guy's also really old <laughs> in the film, so maybe that's <laughs> I look forward to watching it, and I'll post a link to the film in the show notes for anyone listening out there. I want to dig a little deeper into something you said about Opposite Field and how it kind of initially, and I doubt this was the, you know, there were, I'm sure, many motivations for doing that film, but the thing that I want to tap into is how, in some ways, it provided a distraction for you, Mm. but that distraction ultimately became the door you could walk through to work past and move past what you were dealing with. Like the distraction became the door. And do you find that that is often how you process grief or how you process a difficult time, which is to provide yourself or give yourself something that you can work on that is wholly unrelated from what you were experiencing and then use that distraction, so to speak, as the doorway to walk through to work past whatever you're feeling? Or do you sometimes focus on, you know, because my card's on the table and perhaps this is a less healthy way (laughs) to work through grief than how you're approaching it, is oftentimes like the short films that I've made in the past are almost always self-reflecting on whatever I went through in kind of an emotionally autobiographical way. And although the films are not, you know, strictly biographical, there's no one named anyone in my life in them. And the characters that are doing stuff in those films didn't, you know, they're not based on anyone real, but they're emotionally autobiographical, whether dealing with what feels like the end of a friendship or a relationship. And then I kind of just put that into the script. And then in some ways, once I have that short film done, then I feel like I have exercised with an O, not an E, exercised whatever I needed to kind of work through and get past. But I find myself making stuff that is very closely related to the pain that I'm trying to deal with, as opposed to your example of opposite field, where uh, unless I'm missing something from your early 20s relationship, making a documentary about a Ugandan Little League team seems very wholly unrelated to whatever you were experiencing in America after that breakup. So, I I think I'd just love to dig a little deeper in, in terms of Is that how you find yourself usually working through 
difficulty or restlessness or grief by going a completely opposite direction and using the distraction as the door? Or have you ever, I guess, made something as a creator and as a creative that is in some way either loosely or closely connected to whatever it was you were dealing with before? It's a really good question. I don't know. For me, it was more of just that that sort of hack, like I was saying, with I love baseball and I was I found it inspiring what they were doing. And I knew to do it justice, it was going to require me getting out of my own head and really engaging with a world around me, which is for me, maybe it's a flow state kind of hack. It's just it's just a way to guarantee I don't know, a kind of passion, a kind of uncontrollable forfeiting and and almost surrender to something that you can't control. I mean, to tie it back almost to the restlessness and and the philosophers who were dealing with generally the restlessness and anxiety that comes along with the kind of individualism and freedom that the enlightenment has given us, which is really, really hard to be making all these choices, even being to decide what to do in the morning, to decide what to do with your life, to project it a year from now. It's really hard and it's a new problem because pre-enlightenment, this was all taken care of. You knew what you were going to do. You didn't have a choice in the matter. The church was going to decide or your social class was going to decide it or your skin color was going to decide it. And you did it or, you know, you were just surviving. So, you knew you didn't have time to think about anything else than just get the food, get the shelter, stay alive if you can. So, these are like a new, it's a new kind of anxiety and stress to be on our own so much. And I think maybe that can be a source. Obviously, we know it's a source of a lot of anxiety and depression. It's not necessarily related to like a breakup or a death, but it does seem that there's a kind of power to plunging yourself into somewhere where you don't get to make all the choices anymore. A documentary is really one of them. You get to control a lot of it, but it just feels like an uncontrollable world around you that's swirling around you that you you just, to do a good job, you have to be engaged with it. You have to be plunged into it. You have to be caring about it. Um, so, maybe it was just like a personal hack of the responsibility that I knew I would have for them. So, I don't know. I don't know if it, you know, nobody there knew that you know, I was... Go, you know, went through a breakup or something like that. And that was almost kind of the point. I didn't want that to be to, sort of to your analogy or your pushback before seeing the film of the houses. I didn't want that to be any kind of foundation for me. I don't want that to be some sort of like story that's defining my mood or anything anymore. I was trying to like really move on. So maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's finding something that is so distant from myself and my world and my surroundings actually is like the therapeutic kind of hack is the word I just keep coming back to there. So I don't know. I mean, you know, and I sent this to you when my father died, which is something that we might get to. I made a thing purely about it to get that out of my system. And when, uh, you know, with the film with Sam Harris and Majin Nawaz in a lot of ways was like an intellectual kind of strife and anxiety about one particular issue. And I was like, I need to get this out of my system as well. I just need to do something purely about this. So, I don't know, maybe I've done both and it, it sort of manifests in different ways. I like what you just said about how, you know, you didn't talk about that breakup at all while you were doing the film. Although, I love the idea of like you sitting around in a little Ugandan village, like drinking a local beer, sharing your, <laughs> sharing your woes. Tusker is the beer it would be for any African fans. Tusker is a brewery that's named Tusker after the elephant that killed the founder. It's a great beer. Anyway, go on. Ah, there you go. It's a good East African beer. You just have to plug it. They don't sponsor me. Maybe one day. <laughs> Man, I almost want to explore that story for another podcast. But I think a lot of people can relate to what you said about 
kind of getting to write a new story about yourself in the eyes of others. And then as they see you, you get to reframe yourself. I was, you know, picked on a lot as a kid, you know, elementary school, middle school. It started to sort of wane in high school, but it was very hard for me to shed that self-image of myself as defined by how others defined me. And moving from my hometown of Pleasanton to college, and perhaps this was kind of bolstered by the teen movies about kids going to college and reinventing themselves and that whole kind of story, I think, that is potentially very American that we tell ourselves about constant reinvention. But I saw it as an opportunity to be and I don't know how well I pulled that off, but I realized that none of these people in my freshman year of college would have any history about me at all. And they therefore wouldn't know about any of my insecurities that I had around the people who I grew up with in Pleasanton. And by me being a blank slate to them, in some ways, I was able to leave behind my own self-conceptions that had been etched into me by people projecting their views onto me. And I just, I relate to that in my own small way. And I can totally understand how that could be seen by you as an opportunity because when going through grief or when struggling with a self-image of yourself that you feel isn't compatible with how you would like to be seen, that going in front of an entire new crowd of people can be a way to distance yourself from that grief because they can't see any of it. Unlike your close friends who knew that, oh my gosh, Jay just went through a breakup or your parents, oh, he's really struggling right now. I can see how heartbroken he is. In some ways, you can just set that aside because no one in Uganda, (laughs) it would be kind of strange if they had somehow known, knew what you were going through. And so in that way, you being a blank slate to them in that regard, I would imagine in some ways allowed you to work past it. Being able to go into an entirely new environment in which none of those people knew whatever pain you may have been dealing with, in some ways, at least in my experience, when I've had to go through something similar, allows me to work through it myself because I don't have to be confronted by other people's knowledge of what I'm going through. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think I tend to be a little private in those moments, which I don't think is good, even with my parents and stuff. And there's just a shame about feeling like you fucked up or your life just wasn't, you know, I don't know. I think shame is something we probably all struggle with, but clearly it's something that I struggle with and I always have. And so, being somewhere where nobody knows anything is probably a really good way to just escape it, which, which, which might not be, be healthy at all. But yeah, it's a chance for reinvention, a chance for like a, like you said, sort of a blank slate, something that maybe works for me, but but maybe it's why I like the house of cubes thing of like, it's, I don't want to escape all of my selves and my failures I want to understand them and I don't need vengeance from people who hurt me or, and I don't need to hurt them by disappearing as well. I would like to build upon my life in a way that feels somehow coherent. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making any sense. (laughs) You are. Yeah. We spoke a bit in your second appearance about David Mamet's On Directing Film. Mm. It's basically a collection of talks that he gave when he was teaching a film course, and he transcribed them and kind of cleaned them up and turned them into a series of essays. And he's a very action-oriented director in that is very black and white when it comes to what he thinks the right and wrong ways to direct actors is. And he is almost like to a fault about not talking about any of the psychological or backstory, or anything like that when talking to an actor, but literally the bare bones of what their actions in a scene are. You know, So, his direction would be something like, walk through that door and confront your husband. And that would be 
all the action he would give. But in directing, as you're well aware, but to kind of loop our listeners in, there are different ways to direct actors and there are different ways actors like to be directed. And I recall a short I did so many years ago when I was in film school and I was working with these two equally talented actors and they had two entirely different processes, which kind of required me to sort of code switch whenever I would talk to either one of them. I couldn't talk to them together because one of their acting styles was just in total conflict with the other. And if I tried talking to one, like I talked to the other, I would get nowhere. One of them wanted to like talk at length. Like what was my character doing before this? Like, even if it wasn't in the script, what was my character doing before this? How am I feeling? Uh, What do they want? A long almost like therapeutic discussion about what his mind state was and where he was before this and what his relationships were with characters who aren't even in the film, like his mother and father. And then the other actor, all he wanted to know was as little as I could tell him in a few words or maybe a sentence. And it was always just the action. You know, I need you to go here and do this, you know, confront the cashier, yell at this person, right? It was a real contrast between thinking as you were reacting, as in, I'm going to think as I react to my environment versus thinking about how you will act. And while one actor was, okay, I want to think about how I'm going to act and then act. And the second one, the one who only needed a few words or a sentence was very focused on the action. And then he would think about how to react as he was reacting. And I think you can take a lot of people in the world that way too. There are people who just want to act and I don't think either one is, is necessarily worse or better than the other, but it is interesting to see how people process stuff. Some people on the conscious level will just act their way through things and through the act of doing will process whatever they're working through and the thinking will almost happen subconsciously or deep in the background. And then there are others who want to think a lot before they make the action. And then once they make the action, they're past it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Which one are you? <laughs> is this... I think I know the answer. (laughs) I think I'm the one who probably thinks far too much before acting. And I think I have a decent idea of which one you might be leaning more towards. And I do think that there is a lot of power and it's cleaner, I think. And I would imagine, and this is a judgment, but I think it in some ways is healthier to focus on the action and let the thinking kind of recede into the background or happen organically as you're doing the act itself. Yeah. Yeah. Responding to the world, I think, can be a good break rather than trying to precede the world somehow. Yes. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. So, I was taking another glance over your IMDb. You've directed two documentaries yourself, Opposite Field and Islam and the Future of Tolerance, which you did with Sam Harris and Majid Nawaz. Am I missing anything from your filmography in that regard? Uh, No. There's another one called All Rise, but it's like literally only shown in law schools and it's not worth talking about. (laughs) (laughs) There was something we were talking about yesterday that I think is relevant. And I think this applies to most people in our youth or in our early 20s. Life can kind of seem boundless because there are so many, whether they're hypothetical, real or not, so many options and opportunities seemingly available to us, right? I mean, you can pursue one career when you're 22 or 23. And then if you want to, you know, if you have the means, you can just ditch it and try another ladder, so to speak. But as you get older, and I think we're both the same age, 39, as you get older, whether this reality is real or not, or whether it's just something you've internalized as you've aged, it can feel like life is less boundless and all of the many opportunities or endless possibilities you thought you had in your 20s don't feel like they're there anymore. And I would love to talk a little bit, if you're comfortable with it, 
about how you kind of perceived yourself and your own identity as it related to your career in your 20s and how you're perceiving or reexamining yourself now as you approach 40. I think there's something, at least for me, if any of the listeners like feel an affinity towards this, great. For me in my 20s, there was a kind of just like internal passion and drive and energy. It felt like that was the deciding factor and force that led you places. I'm thinking like the Donnie Darko tunnel is this thing that would like pull you places. And if it didn't, like if you had an idea or excited about something just and then just like not enough to finish it or to pursue it, then you just sort of decided, well, like, oh, I, I guess I just didn't want it as bad. And like that was, it was like, okay, because it was your guiding kind of gut passion was the thing that just dragged you around. And there was enough of it, at least in me, to pull me through the finish line of a lot of projects that I was like, oh, I must have just wanted to do that really badly. And that's cool. And then at some point, it's like, it just stops working, at least for me. It's like you hit 30 and you get in your early 30s. And then like this thing just, you feel it at the beginning. You're like excited about something and then it fizzles out after a week or a couple of weeks. You do the same thing being like, oh, I guess I didn't really want to do that one as bad as I thought I did. I'll just wait for the next thing to move me. But at least for me, you start realizing like this just is not a reliable tug anymore. And I, I think what might be happening there, I'm thinking of a Louis C.K. joke where you hit this age where like what you do just stops being impressive. When it's like, if you're in your 20s, he has a joke, of course, about comedians of being like, whoa, like you're a stand-up comic. You're only 20-something. Like how cool, like how impressive, like wow, people all cheer for you. Then you hit a certain age and it's like, oh, you're a 30-something, you're a comic, do your fucking job. <laughs> like, great. Like no one's impressed anymore. And I think there was probably something happening with me on some level of unhealthy desire. We talked about this before too, an unhealthy desire of, of wanting to be impressive and wanting to sort of impress whoever, the audience in your mind, which is maybe something we'll talk about too, that in your 20s, it's so impressive to be that young and be a filmmaker or be doing these cool things. And then you start realizing how ridiculous this sounds, especially in your 30s being like, cool, like you're a filmmaker. I guess there's some cachet to it still, which I don't think it's healthy to think about very much. But at least I was like, oh, I guess that's my job. <laughs> and like now I, I have to find projects and meaning in and of themselves rather than sort of the tag and the avatar of myself that gets to precede me in parties or something. I think that's a really important lesson to learn. Unfortunately, most of us, I feel like just have to go through it instead of somehow being warned that it was always kind of a bad idea. And some people never get out of it. I think, you know, I actually have sympathy for this sounds weird, but I have sympathy for people who have an extraordinary amount of success as we define it in sort of these capitalistic terms at a young age in these fields because they really can get trapped in some pretty unhealthy psychological, you know, ego fests that really age very poorly, but they just never learned how to get out of it. And they never have to because they have this money and this wealth and they probably have a lot of people around them. But, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm grateful for getting knocked down a peg in my own mind of like, oh, I'm not so fucking cool, you know? cursing a lot on your new show. I don't, I don't know if you're going to be bleeping all these out. Yeah, we, we shall see. <laughs> I want to dig into that a little bit because I want to see if my interpretation of what you're saying is close to or at least adjacent to what you're getting at. And what I'm about to say is not a commentary on your career or anything specifically. Going back to what you were saying about how like when you're in your early 20s and someone here is like, oh my gosh, you're a filmmaker. You make documentaries. Wow, amazing. Going back to what I was saying earlier about how when you're young and there's all those doors open to you, uh, it can seem like the world is full of endless possibilities and who knows what door you'll walk through, right? 
I feel a very similar sense of that. Like when I was young in my teens and early 20s, I had like quite a few fairly significant accomplishments under my belt, at least ones that sounded impressive to people when I talked to them, even though I was filled with self-doubt. Like I had written for a nationally published magazine, you know, I had accomplished some things and won some awards. And when I'm, you know, 18, 19, early 20s, and I would tell people that, they'd be like, oh my gosh, wow, you know? And I think a lot of that wow factor, when you're hearing it from someone older than you or a peer, I could be off base here, but I think some of it is, wow, where will they go? Who knows where Jay, you know, or Michael or whoever we're talking about, if they're doing this at 23, 24, what will they be when they're 35, 40, 45? And I wonder, because I agree with you that we shouldn't attach our own self-worth to whatever it is that we're doing as a career, because I think that, like you said, that is a total dead end, which is just going to lead to grief. But I think when people do fall into that trap, I think what can happen is if you imagine any career like you're in a, you know, like a 10-story building or whatever in an office, right? And I know that's not what filmmaking is, but I'm trying to find a metaphor that's appropriate here. Let's say you're on the fourth floor of that office when at your age, you should be on the second floor. And so you tell people you're on the fourth floor of the office and they're like, oh my gosh, he's on the fourth floor of the office and he's only 23. Man, when's he going to get to the 10th floor? But then let's say you're still on the fourth floor or just the fifth floor or even the sixth floor and it's now 20 years later. The sixth floor might be pretty impressive. It might be where most people your age are. But because of what people were thinking and saying about you and how you conceived of yourself at that age, you kind of projected your own erroneous timeline into the future. And then when you fell short of something that you thought you would achieve by a certain age, you feel like you have not only disappointed yourself, but those people who were impressed with you at a younger age. I think that's it. And I, and I think all of this is just terribly unhealthy. I think what we're describing here is is very common. I'm sure people are going to feel this and, and understand it. So, I had another episode that was actually way too short. I'm just going to plug it a little bit. This guy, Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N, he's been talking to educators and to parents like since the 80s. He was on like Donahue and Oprah back in those days. And he's been writing books that are against homework, against grades, against standardized testing. His first book that kind of put him out there was called No Contest. And he's really kind of like an anti-competition guy for kids, really. You could listen to the episode. It was far too short. But I want people just to try to watch a talk he gave somewhere. He's pretty like energetic and he might strike you as this like overly utopian guy. He gets that criticism a lot. But I talked to him even knowing it was going to be a short conversation because there was something so sticky about his criticism of this hyper-competitive world that we put children in to me. He wrote another book called Unconditional Parenting. And I'm not a parent. I put a disclaimer in front of that episode being like, my brother told me like, you need to tell people you're not a parent up front because you're about to criticize a lot of this stuff or at least note that a lot of parenting can be very um, unintentionally damaging. And it's a really, really hard job. And I was careful, if I could be, that the criticism that I'm going to lay out even here maybe now is targeted towards society that we're molding kids to survive in. And I feel like I was one of them. I grew up in a suburb, as we keep saying, and outside of Philadelphia, Allentown, Pennsylvania. And it was competitive, not like, I don't think crazy Long Island stuff, but there's a competition to it. And there's just a, there's an air of what kind of part you're going to be in the system and you're going to succeed. And like you said, you are, you're aware even in high school of these kind of levels that you can start playing and when the clock starts of your age and how impressive you can be. And it's just out there. And and it's not great. And so, in unconditional parenting, 
it sounds like such a basic idea that we get punishment and praise based on our behavior. This is what parents do all the time, right? Like you're good. And then you get what he would really hate is the manifestation of like a reward. Like I had friends who got paid for getting A's. I don't know if you did and where you were, but he hates that stuff, right? Or like even just finish your dessert or you, <laughs> you finish your dessert, finish your vegetables and you get extra dessert or you get to play with my phone for five minutes. He hates that. Or you did something poorly and then you get a timeout. He doesn't he advocates against rewards and punishments as being totally counterproductive towards what we state are our long-term goals for our kids. But on a more just like basic level, in unconditional parenting, he also makes the point of it doesn't need to be a physical thing like a trip to Disney World if you, you know, get straight A's or something. It can literally just be love. If love and attention flows based on your behavior rather than kind of like who you are, this is the same kind of reward system and it could be a really like insidious one because it's so subtle. And I have an older brother, maybe some of this is going to get personal. I think your new show might just be more personal, so I'm not going to shy away from it. But I have just one older brother, I'm the younger one. And I know the dynamic I grew up in was pretty good, but there was conditional flows of love in subtle ways that, that his book and his work made me aware of where my brother was the smart kid. He was the kid who got straight A's and the book smart kid. And he is very smart. He ended up going to Carnegie Mellon and doing computer stuff, but he was always like that guy, right? He was the guy who wasn't really athletic or like with all the girls, but he was a nerd and all his friends with, were nerds. And that was his thing. And so my thing, again, like this is just like, I found my path because that was the path that was available to me was like the creative, athletic, good looking kid. And that's kind of the roles that we ended up playing. And kids are really smart. And we want love and we want attention. And I know playing and performing that role, which became my identity as a kid and in high school, was how I was going to get the attention. I would get the positive sort of feedback loop. But what it did do, of course, is like I wasn't going to be the smart book kid. I actually didn't read a lot in high school or as a kid. And I didn't, I just knew that was my brother's thing. And maybe out of like reverence for him, like I wasn't going to take that away from him. And he was super supportive of what I was doing and I was supportive of what he was doing. But this entire dynamic is still a conditional dynamic and setting up even for something as basic as attention and love from a parent. And that carries on. Like about the houses things, like I, you know, I've been banging the drum in the philosophical and political circles that we're not really focused on here so much that they don't talk about psychology enough. And a lot of their analysis and of all the, the names we know that falls short and, and all the culture war stuff that we're really not talking about right now fails and might be really frustrating for me because it ignores psychology so much. Like we still need to realize that we came from our past and from our childhoods. And you could trace so much back there. And frankly, you can map that onto societies in bigger ways. Writers like you know that that I like, like Eric Fromm or even Hannah Arendt, use psychology in ways and turn it into sociology that I think is much more predictive and descriptive of our larger trends in society and politics. But set that aside and I could go back to sort of my story. You know, coming out of that childhood and going into college, you don't forget kind of the role that you took on in order to get those positive feedback loops, you get a chance to reinvent yourself and you get some space, but there's a lot of residue from our childhoods and there's a lot of performance about how to get a positive feedback. It's not apparent maybe anymore, although in our minds, I think it always is. I don't know if we ever outgrow that, which is also challenging, but that becomes, I think, a, a crippling kind of pressure for a lot of 
a lot of people. I mentioned him now, and, and I don't need to lay out the entire thesis, but Eric Fromm wrote another book called The Sane Society, where <laughs> basically points out that the society we've built actually would be, di- if it was a person, would be diagnosed to have insanity. <laughs> and it's possible that people who really struggle with this, I don't know if you have any friends who kind of didn't get out of that world and maybe now are like a shameful name to throw around in the parent circles because they just can't get their life together. It's possible that they actually are the same ones for really not being able to cope with a world that puts on a lot of pressure to navigate it and navigate it healthily in any kind of way. But this is a pitch again for Alfie Cohn as a probably a bit extreme. I think sometimes his you know, advocacy can be a little far, but it's worth sitting with and worth trying to challenge yourself with. Because I remember my childhood being subconsciously groomed into this way by very well-meaning parents, very well-meaning people and well-meaning teachers that prepared me, honestly, for a psychological challenge that I'm still trying to overcome. And I feel lucky to have gotten out or to be as unscathed as I feel like I am when, you know, I think it's much worse for, for many people. And, and there's certainly other cultures now like Korea, which has a tremendously high suicide rate that has taken this to like the millionth degree and would just kind of scoff at everything I just said as totally foreign and totally not part of the world we're building. And I don't, I don't know what to do with all of that. So, I don't know if that even related to your question anymore, but I just have to sort of get it out of, out of my mind. As far as I'm concerned, it's all related. But by the way, just to add one more thing before your question, it's probably also why I left Twitter because this was hacking into part of my psychology that felt exploited by this need for a positive feedback loop and for uh, to be noticed, to be impressive. You know, it's not by being the athletic, good looking guy on Twitter, although I'm sure (laughs) that could happen too. But it felt bad for, I think, a lot of these reasons. And I feel much better not feeding that monster in myself. No, I totally understand that. One of the many reasons I got off Twitter myself, there's a saying about reality TV or documentaries in general that you can never truly capture reality with a camera because the moment that your subject understands that he or she is being filmed, you automatically alter their performance. Because we are such social animals and because I think we crave and desire and need either consciously or usually subconsciously the approval of other people. It's interesting to think about your relationship with your brother as if you're on a reality TV show Mm -hmm. and the people around you are the cameras, right? Because Mm -hmm. what you're saying leads me to believe, and I think this is very relatable for people, I have a somewhat similar dynamic between my sister and I. Mm. If you were the older brother or had your brother never been around, you're saying that you might have been in some ways a wholly different person because you wouldn't have felt you had to take a space that he wasn't already occupying. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It felt like the roles were clear. Of course, you know, nobody wrote them. They weren't intentional, but it's how we each learned how to turn the knobs of positive reinforcement and just love and attention from the adults around us. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with what you're saying about how we can never truly escape the older versions of ourselves or the perceptions that have been burrowed into us or that we have absorbed. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we're always going to be building new houses on top of the old ones. Whether we would like to or not, they will always be there. But I think this might be a good opportunity to transition to something that is slightly related. And I appreciate you sharing this with me earlier today. 
You've talked a bit about Eric Fromm, and you shared an episode of Philosophize This, episode 151, hosted by Stephen West. He quotes Fromm, who was a German social psychologist and humanistic philosopher, quote, love is the only sane and satisfactory answer to the fundamental problem of human existence, end quote. And then West elaborates himself by saying, quote, the fundamental problem being that we are separate from everything and everyone else, that we are alone, that we exist in a state of what Fromm calls existential loneliness, end quote. And you recommended that I listen to episode 151 of Philosophize This, which was an episode dedicated to Fromm's 1941 book, Escape from Freedom. And while I didn't have the time to listen to most of that episode, I did think that that quote might act as a decent seg to talk about something else that you shared with me, which was a recording you made called Don't Disappear, about the passing of your father, Edward Shapiro, about five years ago at 64. And so I think before we get into it, would you like to share a little bit about what that recording is and and why you made it? Hmm. Well... The story of what it is is in the recording itself, so I guess people should listen of what it is. My dad died at 64. He got lung cancer out of nowhere. He was never a smoker, just got it, diagnosis, and a death nearly a year later from it. And yeah, I mean, this is sort of related, like you said, because part of my role in the um, family is also filmmaker. And so, I had done a film, a little mini documentary about my grandfather when he was dying, which was sort of just a normal, like he's in his 80s and he's old. So, I made a little film of him with an interview with him at his birthday in a sort of a hospice home, nursing home where he died. And uh, I was supposed to do that for my father as well, or I wanted to. I wanted to document this because it was a weird thing. He got lung cancer. It's a lung cancer that like, you know, he had like a scratch in his throat. He, it was like nothing. And he, he was like, then eh, it's like weird thing won't go away. I'll go check it out. And it's like, oh, you have lung cancer and you're, <laughs> you're, it doesn't look good. It's totally crazy. But he was in total health. The point of saying that is like he had if he hadn't known, then he probably wouldn't have known. And so, it was this opportunity to be like, you just got like an hourglass on your life, basically. And we have this opportunity to like film something and document something for his grandkids and whatever. So, that didn't happen. And you'll have to listen to the piece to kind of understand why and go through it. But yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. It was just like insanely therapeutic and very, very difficult. If there's listeners who've lost a parent, it's weird. You can't prepare yourself for it. I had a friend when he got diagnosed that I reached out to whose father had also died young. And he was like, oh, you know, all that crazy, like deep family stuff that you guys never talk about. And it's just like really deep and ignored. That's all going to come out. (laughs) And he was right. I was like, I had no idea what he was talking about, but he's right. Like it's, there's something about a death like that and attention to it that just it's like a laser focus on something that is very raw and feels very real and in a lot of ways is really beautiful. Actually, we mentioned, you know, I made a film with Sam Harris and, and the talk he gave called Death in the Present Moment was the one ages ago, if you, someone finds it online, is his best work I think he's ever done, <laughs> including the thing he did with me. So, there you go. But it was the reason why I knew Sam was a, a thinker that I knew was doing something a little different and interesting. So, people should seek that out as well because he makes this point about knowing what it's like to drop everything and just concentrate on one thing, which is helping someone die. And so, I got a chance to do that with my dad and it was really, really, really special for about a week in Florida as he, that's where he finally, finally went. So, I don't, I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> I would recommend that anyone who's listening now take a moment. The audio is about 30 minutes long. 
the link is in the show notes. And I would recommend that anyone just pause this and listen to it because it is very moving. And the thing that I really related to, and we've spoken about this, Jay, is I feel like the most... I listened to this like an hour before we were about to talk. And so it's such a moving piece that I was like, I almost wish... I can't listen to it either. I mean, I I still can't even listen to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I almost wish I had listened to it a few days ago (laughs) because it's right at the surface of my throat. But what I loved so much about it, and I mean that all the respect that I can muster, is that it took a universal experience, which is death, in that everyone will either have to witness a loved one go through that or they will go through that themselves. And you filtered it through your very specific, your own biography, but I was also so moved by how you filtered it through your lens as a filmmaker. I think what was universal about that audio, and you just kind of touched on this a second ago, is how before you find out that someone close to you is unwell, you might think to yourself, oh, we have so much time to resolve things. We have so much time to get around to doing whatever we need to do or having the talks that we need to have. And I think that that is universal, this idea of, oh, we have time. And then all of a sudden realizing that you might not have as much time with that person as you thought you would. But how I connected with it in an additional way and what I thought was so unique and personal and vulnerable about how you expressed it is how you expressed it through and struggled with a feeling of either regret or unease with how you wished you had documented certain things via your position and experience as a filmmaker, as a documentarian, and how you express that grief through that lens, which I thought was very... I mean, I just connected with it. I don't want to overanalyze it, but I guess I would pose to you a question. And please, at any point, if I'm overstepping or if I'm asking too personal of a question, please feel free to cut me off. When you were talking about how you filmed you know, the last days your grandfather had, if I could only ask, because I've only ever done fictional work, I've never done documentarian work at all, and I know that that's the world that you come from. What does it feel like when you were recording your grandfather? Or do you feel split? Because for me, like when I'm doing something creative, I'm in a very specific mindset. I need to get coverage. I need to write this. I need to make sure that this works and that works and this works. And I don't think those instincts ever go away. I mean, even as we're talking right now, and even as I was preparing for our talk, I was thinking about a oh, structure and where's this going to go? And yeah, yeah, yeah. part of my brain that I have to sometimes force myself to turn off because I, I think it can get in the way. What was that like for you when you were documenting your grandfather and realizing that you were going to make something that was going to be so valuable, so, excuse me, valuable to your family and realizing it was an intensely personal thing. While also, I imagine there must have been some part of you that was still thinking about it as a filmmaker. Yeah, it's awkward. <laughs> and I think the only way that I can deal with it, did you see Rent? Do you know, you know the Broadway play Rent? I'm familiar, was, yeah. Smash it. There was a character in it. I don't remember a ton of it, but there was a character in it who was always filming everything. He was on stage like with, a, I think it was a 16 millimeter camera all the time, his character, and he was filming, documenting the story of this. People remember Rent. It was the story of this uprising at a a slum and a housing thing where everyone decides they're not going to pay rent. This guy's documenting and he's one of the tenants. He's documenting all the time, every scene. He's got this thing and and they kind of call him out at the end on the film of like that, that 
apparatus was his way to separate himself from the community and take this like third person objective point of view and not actually be a part of it. And he kind of breaks it down at the end and shows the film and becomes a piece of it and everything. And I I thought it was a smart character. I obviously related to it while you were talking there about it can become this mode that gives you an excuse to not be a genuine human just talking to someone because it it becomes transactional. I mean, if you're doing like a private family thing that you know no one's ever going to see and it's not for profit and all that, maybe you could get away with it a little bit more of actually being there with the camera. But it's very, very difficult. And I think it's a point that I really love when documentary films, you brought up this point earlier of like a they ruin reality because there's a camera there. This might be getting weird because everyone has cameras now. So maybe everyone's just being filmed all the time. And that's, we're sort of melding into this always, there's always an audience recording you. But I like when documentary films acknowledge that the experiment is ruined and that there is a film crew on set. I think that would be helpful to sort of just like put in narratively, but um, yeah, it's awkward and it's difficult. That's my only way to sort of put it. And it, may have also been a reason. I mean, you'll hear in the piece if people actually went and listened to they just heard it, but if not, you'll hear, you know, my father was really not wanting to think of himself as dying and making a film with me for the purpose of this is a for us to watch when you're dead admits you have to admit that you're dying if you're the subject. And so I put that on him and my mom in the piece of being like, they didn't want to think about it, but I probably didn't want to think about it really, if I'm being honest with myself in some ways. And so I, maybe that's what I was afraid of what you're bringing up there is I knew I had precious time left. No, I'm doing it. So I knew I knew I had precious time left with him in that last year. I would see him, you know, as often as I could. I was in New York and he was in Pennsylvania. It wasn't too hard. But maybe I didn't want to not be I didn't want to be filmmaker Jay in front of him if I felt like that was sort of going to be disconnected from myself. And so maybe I was also resisting being in that mode. So it's it's really, really, really tricky. But as you mentioned, the piece I did with my grandfather was just a um it's still a treasure for the family. And it's not even that great of a thing. I like filmed him on a digital aid handy cam, but it's like his stories and it's him and you could see him and he's alive and he's funny. He was a funny guy. Yeah. And I thought for a while, actually, like this is such a cool concept. And I, I thought for a bit, like I should start a company that actually offers this service. Cause I don't know a lot of this, like people make videos for all kinds of things in their life. And at least in American culture, there's no service that I think I'm sure there's out there. Maybe people are going to send them to me now that do this, that do like personalized documentaries about people who are just normal people who we all love, right? Like my father was a guy, we all have people we love and it's kind of a cool therapeutic process, but I wouldn't, it's not always recommended for a family member to do it. And I thought that'd be such an interesting thing to like go in and do that for people. And then I thought like, oh, I would, I couldn't do this. I would just be devastated all the time because they're so heavy. So I never really pursued that. But if there's people out there listening, think about it, even just an audio recording, it's usually the people themselves really appreciate it. But yeah, my father wasn't one of them. He wasn't going to engage in that. So I still have regrets about it, to be honest, that I didn't do it and force him to do it. But just, you know, it's part of the house that that is under the house that I'm in now. So it is what it is. And yeah, there you go. And I can understand in my own small way, having not experienced what you've experienced, Jay, in this regard, the tension that would exist inside of you between, like you said, not wanting to confront it, but also, and I think this is universal, when 
so much in your life or what's happening specifically in the moment feels beyond your control. I think it is very natural to want to grasp on to what you can do and do that thing. You know, there's that famous joke, like, is there a doctor on the plane, right? Hmm. I'll give a more personal example. When I was young, like 12, 13 years old, maybe younger than that, actually, probably 10 or 11, my dad had four brothers. He has three now. One of them passed away like uh, 15, 10, 15 years ago. But one of his brothers, my uncle Tim, does construction. And that's kind of underselling it. Like he's fantastic. He's really, really good with his hands, can build so many different things. And one of the ways that I think he showed his love for me and my sister when my parents moved into our then new home when I was about 10 or 11 years old in Pleasanton was he built a like a little clubhouse for me and my sister in our backyard. And through him building that for us, he got to use the skills that he'd learned over his adult life and manifest them in a way that showed that he cared. So, you know, that was obviously a, a much less urgent scenario and a much happier time. But I think that that feeling of wanting to put yourself to use when so much of what might be happening feels so beyond your grasp. I think that's a very human and natural and understandable thing to want to grasp onto because you can say, well, I'm not a doctor and there are so many other things that I can't do for you right now. But one thing that I know that I can do and do well is do this. And so I can understand why you would reach for that. And I can also understand, again, in my own small way, why reaching for that might be difficult to do. One thing that might be that is not in that piece that we also talked about, I think, off mic was that I did a lot of, you know, we're on the themes of sort of like building upon grief or like what motivates you. And I made a lot of changes after he died that I was unaware of before they came. You know, <laughs> in the previous segment, I was just talking about sort of like parenting and the good job they did, but unintentionally, like a lot of parents and viewing me with all kinds of hangups and resentments that I still struggle with and all kinds of, like everybody does. But when he was gone, the analogy I would use is like, you know, you just carry a lot of stories around about yourself. Obviously, one of these stories I learned as a kid of like the creative athletic kid or whatever was just a story. They're all just stories. And they kind of all like fell <laughs> to the ground the moment that he died. And I went through this process of sort of being able to pick them back up again, and, but maybe look at them for the first time. And some of them felt very, very different for the first time and not like mine and more like his. And I was able to maybe see that we all want to believe that we've grown out of the influence of our parents and these conditioned things that we started with as children so much. And a lot of times we haven't. And then ironically, a death of them is sometimes the thing that actually you need to notice that their tug on you was stronger than it needed to be. And, you know, it's something that happened to me and it's sometimes uncomfortable to talk about, about good things that come from deaths because it feels selfish and it feels like, what good could it be? But those are kind of conversations that I think are important to still have. And that if he could hear me saying it, he would also be proud of and be aware of and not angry about, you know, I told you this off mic yet, when on his deathbed, he, he the girl I was with, which was totally the wrong relationship for me. He told me to marry her <laughs> on his deathbed because he thought he, I should. But I realized that this was the complete wrong relationship and this relationship was really for him all along and for some other image I had of myself that didn't feel like me at all. And I was going through a growth process and it was actually not a good relationship. And so, I left it. I made a lot of changes after his death that, you know, I don't know if they would have been able to happen. We were talking before about 
thinking things through or just things happen and then you react. At least for me, the death of a parent was something that I, I could have probably sat in a room for a million years thinking of things and I probably would not have been able to feel it as a deep truth until I went through it and felt it and sort of live and in the moment like that. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, what you're talking about in your relationship with your father is related to what you were talking about earlier regarding your brother. And I think this is, again, another universal thing. Like, we are only as individual as we can be in relation to how other people interact with and perceive us. And so, you know, you were Jay as a kid, but you were also the younger brother. And how is that going to affect who you become and the individual you form yourself to be? And in a way, what you're talking about here is you were Jay, but you were also your father's son. And how does that affect who you are and who you become and the decisions you make? Yeah, yeah. You'll hear in the piece too. Actually, I don't even think I put in. He was always my baseball coach, which was always, which was always a interesting, complicated relationship as well. Because it, I think it gave me my imposter syndrome when I think back about it. Because it wasn't a, the coach who like favored me. I think right. Like I always had that fear of like, oh, I'm the coach's son, so that's why I'm the starting pitcher today, and all the parents know it. Like I'm here not because of the meritocracy of, of sports, but because of some nepotism of my last name. And that's why I'm here. So, I think it's always given me this sort of imposter syndrome. Maybe it made me try harder because I wanted to like prove to everyone that I actually deserved the spot. But yeah, the baggage of our own psychology is, I think, still, like I keep saying, not just on a personal level, but on a societal level and on just sort of, I don't know what's happening in the Twitterverse anymore right now. But I can almost guarantee that it needs more of this kind of conversation and this and kind of psychological understanding to really make any progress or predict even our own behaviors. So, yeah. We don't have to stay here too much longer, but I want to just tap onto something that you just said about, again, just talking about perception and, and how you saw your father and your relationship with him as either your coach or otherwise. And it takes me to, and again, I hope by this point, anyone listening to this has listened <laughs> to your 30 minute piece because it's well, well worth it. But I want to pull a quote from like the last third or quarter of that recording where you said, quote, I always had this idea that my father was a kind of superhero in his field, but I never expected this end quote. And the, this was the dings that started coming from his phone as word spread through the university that he was a professor at, that he was ill and about to pass. And you go on to say, quote, they were students, colleagues, long forgotten friends. My mom was shocked by the names. She would turn to me and say things like, I can't believe this. She must have been a student of your dad's when you were five years old. And then you go on to say, and that's how it went for four days until he died. The three of us passing the phone around the bed and reading letters of gratitude and love for my father. My mom has since collected all of those emails and printed them in a book, which I have in front of me now, end quote. And I'll leave the rest of that for people to listen to. But my question, Jay, was just as you were reading those letters and perhaps as you reflect on them now, I'm not sure how often you go back to that book, but how did it affect, did it affect at all your own perception of your father or how you saw him? Because again, and I think this applies to everybody, we can only really perceive our loved ones and really everyone else through our relationship to them, or at least that's the thing that's at the forefront of our own minds. And we can't really know truly how that same person is perceived by the dozens or hundreds of other people who have entirely different relationships with that person. So did going through those letters and emails and texts that were fundamentally about what your father meant to those other people did they change or affect your own perception of your father through their eyes? Yeah. 
I still have the book. It's over there on the, on the shelf if you want me to, to go show you, but I can't read it. I, I still haven't read them because it's just, it's, I can't, I still can't get through them. Of course. Yeah. My mom put it this way of like, how'd you, she was like, he grew, you know, 10 times in that bed or something. I remember my dad was a bit of a workaholic and he was always up in his office working. And so he's a school psychology professor and very, very dedicated to his work and his writing and, and this institution. So he worked at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, my whole life. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I don't even really know what he did <laughs> when I was growing up. He never really talked about it, but he spent a lot of time up there doing this. And, I, and we would go to conferences and stuff, and he was a speaker, so I knew he was important. But, uh, the letters that come flying in, it was emails and texts. It was just spreading through that, yeah, like the community, I'm sure on Facebook and other places, people were posting stuff of like, oh, whatever, Ed, Edward Shapiro is sick. And everyone was reaching out. I think the dean was collecting it all. And yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, my mom and myself and my brother and I still obviously talk about this kind of amazing experience. But I remember sometimes thinking about these letters that come in and almost being jealous, right? Like, they knew my father better than I did or in a different way than I did. And, you know, it was almost kind of like, it's hard to share people that we love, I guess, is sort of like the truth that comes out there. But in so many ways, I was happy for him that he really had this family, this really deep connection and love and family while he was in that world and doing all that stuff that, you know, loved him back. And so, it changed my perception in a totally positive way that I was just so glad that he always had had that. Yeah. And, and I don't know if like there's a lesson there to take away, but that's just, it was sort of a beautiful moment that we all knew was incredibly special while it was happening. So, it was one of those sort of magical life moments where, you know, it's like, there's those moments where you know that you're forming a, a memory and an image that just, you know, is important. And it was that for like a week straight. So, it was kind of overload. It was very exhausting emotionally because he, he was sort of in this like twilight zone state for like four days in and out of this drug state until he finally just sort of drifted away as his breathing stopped. But that entire week, they never stopped. Yeah. I, I, I'm choking him now. I still have it on my shelf. I can't open it and read it. I get through like one of them. I try in the piece as you hear and I don't get more than a line before I'm like, Jesus Christ, I can't keep going. Yes. It's amazing. I feel very, very, very lucky to have this entire experience really. And I think it's understandable. Like when we're kids and we read, you know, whether they're fairy tales or the Brothers Grimm or biblical stories or whatever it might be. I think that forms in our minds this pressure to feel like that every story that we read or every story that we share feels like it needs to have some kind of lesson in order for the story right. to be worthwhile to hear. But I think that we absorb that, you know, as kids. And I think we might feel extra pressure as filmmakers to think like, well, you know, what's the point? But I think that oftentimes the entire point of it all is just the sharing. And so, I really appreciate you making yourself available to share that with me and with everyone else. And I, again, highly recommend that people take a listen to that audio. Are you, this might seem slightly tangential, Jay, but are you familiar with the documentary, The Stories We Tell by Sarah Pauly? No. Oh, highly recommend it. 2012. It's one of the best documentaries that I've ever seen. And I highly recommend this to anyone listening. It's a movie, a documentary that Sarah made ostensibly about her mother after her mother had passed. And I don't want to spoil it. So, I won't say much more. 
but it is ultimately a movie about perception and how we see the people we love versus how other people see them, depending on if they're mm. a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a sibling, a daughter, a son, a coworker, and how that person is so many different people to all the people that they've ever interacted with in their lives. And that was just in the back of my mind as you were talking, because I will say like my own father is, you know, a very big presence in my life and in the lives of others. And I know he has, there's this one very close friend that he has at work. He has a similar relationship to him in a work environment way that he does to me. And this coworker of his is about my age, has a similar sense of humor. And yeah, there's this part of me sometimes when he'll talk about like, you know, the stories they have together, whatever on, on the work floor or whatever. It's so weird, but I will definitely go through this period of feeling a little tinge of jealousy, mm -hmm. even though I shouldn't at all. But it's intensely relatable because I'm like, how, you know, <laughs> my father's his own man. Like I'm not his keeper, but it's, it's so strange that those feelings kind of come up inside of, they bubble up inside of me, even if I don't intend them to. And even on a very conscious level, I don't care. Like I, my father should have outside relationships, but it's interesting what happens kind of almost instinctually when you hear that they have created memories with other people that they never did with you. And it's a very strange feeling to have. Yeah. I really like what you said about this need for stories to have some sort of moral or some lesson to take away. And maybe and it's not, sometimes that's not the point. It's just the sharing in, in itself because life's complicated. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No, I 100% I agree. And again, it's, it's an instinct I have to fight like all the time because I'm almost always in storytelling mode, whether I'm with my friends or I'm at work or what have you. And when I'm talking about something in my own life, like with a friend or a loved one that is like painful or with a therapist, when I went to therapy, right? It was very hard to get out of my own head and stop thinking, okay, just what's the structure of this story? Is the therapist engaged? Are they interested in what I'm saying? Like, am I moving at a quick enough pace that they really feel like the story is going somewhere? It was just constantly in my head. And I would find myself in the beginning of the therapy sessions, I went to therapy for several years, I would find myself in those first sessions apologizing to the therapist because I felt the stories were boring. <laughs> and she had to keep reassuring me like, Michael, I'm not judging them that way. Like, I'm not judging you on whether or not the stories are engaging or if they're boring or if they get to a point. I'm learning about who you are. And that's going to be helpful for me and for you as we continue to work through whatever it is you need to work through. But it, it took me so... I still catch myself today, like when I'm trying to be personal and share stuff with people that I have to force myself to be like, it's okay if the entire point of what I'm saying right now is just to share what I need to share rather than, all right, like, have I hooked them by page three, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's a tough thing to fight. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that relate to take it to more of like sort of the societal realm? I mean, I think that relates to what I was hinting at about this like hyper-competitive commodification of everything society that we live in where you are i don't know how you've experienced this but i left twitter i don't know how many months now <laughs> that i've been sober and you've done uh, the same thing and i'm not going to name any names but there's certainly a feeling of being forgotten a little bit by the world or or being i don't know ignored or you know i don't really have an impulse or feel an impulse to get back in it at all to like join any kind of fray but I feel a little more worthless to certain people, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't know if you've felt, experienced this yet or whatnot, because, because I don't have any followers. I don't 
not worth anything to anybody anymore in this society. Why would you talk to me? Why would you engage with me on something? I mean, <laughs> we're both two exiles from talking to each other now on the show. So it's interesting. But it was sort of another feeling that was like, oh, like I'm, I'm less of a commodity now, right? Like my profile in the world is worth a little less. It's like, I, you know, just don't have that legion behind me. I can't bring any fans into your world or something like that. And it sucks. Like it's an actually like shitty equation that, that I've kind of felt, but it seems that that's the society we've built is, you know, I'm not the first to make this point, but everyone seems to be managing an avatar of themselves. And the avatar is a bunch of statistics of how many followers they're worth and how many, you know, influencer points they have. I don't know if you've come across sets that have done that yet. I've worked on commercial sets where, you know, the talent will be a model or someone and it has an influencer score on their sort of like headshot with some calculation of how many followers they have and, you know, how many sales get done based on clicks or if they do something like that. I don't love that world or where it's going, but it seems to be infecting everybody in a way, even to a therapy session where you're like, oh man, like, did he thumbs up my, my session? Did that story get a like or a heart in my own mind? And maybe I'm still detoxing from sort of the Twitter verse. <laughs> you and me both. I've only been off Twitter. Gosh, what? I guess by the time this recording comes out a little over a month and I can still feel the poison coursing through my veins. But I think this might be a good place to start to wrap it up. As I mentioned at the start of our conversation, though this is episode 46 of the show, it is technically the first episode of Where We Go Next. So as such, Jay, you'll be the first person to answer the show's final question. Now, usually when talking with guests about society-wide issues, either relating to technology or entertainment, city planning, politics, et cetera, et cetera, the question will usually be, where do we go next with then whatever the topic is? So where do we go next with politics? Where do we go next with food production, et cetera? But I think in cases like this, especially because of the conversation that we've had today, when talking about an individual life, I think the better question right now is, Jay, where do you want to go next? I think we've talked a lot about death in this episode, my grandfather and my father and these engagements with it through media. I think I said when I brought up my grandfather's piece, or maybe you brought it up, that this film that now I made, I don't even know, like 10, 15 years ago when he died. And this little documentary that's become this like heirloom piece for our family and how important that is. You know, my brother still watches it actually. I think like every Yom Kippur during the fast, he watches it as a ritual. My mom watches it sometimes. I revisit it and it's sort of special. And I mentioned, I think in passing that, you know, someone should do that service and I thought about doing it. I think, I think maybe I want to explore that more and do that service. I was afraid of it before and didn't do it then because I just thought it'd be too heavy to always be dealing with that kind of thing. But I, I actually, I actually love the end of life moment in a lot of ways and the psychology of it and the big questions that surface and the responsibility and care that it took to do that for my grandfather and kind of, you know, tell his story and summarize the complexities of an infinite, you know, amount of things that happen in a life into something that was special is, I don't know, something that maybe I can offer. So, I don't know where I go next, I think is, is maybe you have a little more courage about taking that on and stepping that in. So, I don't know, keep an eye on me. I, I think, uh, you know, I could launch a little service that is dedicated to helping tell 
the stories and these little mini documentaries about people that we love who are on their way out. So maybe that's where I go next. That's a really beautiful answer, Jay. There was something that you said in that Don't Disappear piece where you talked about not being able to locate someone anymore. And I think that that's something that a lot of people, after a loved one passes, something a lot of people experience. And I think that the service you're talking about could provide some kind of answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah. If I could just add one thing to that, because it it reminds me that if your audience out there, I don't know the makeup of your audience really, but I, I feel like it's a sort of universal Western feeling at the moment of a kind of dissatisfaction with the traditions on the shelf, maybe religious ones, or especially around death, that it always feels a little dissatisfying. And I tell that story in that piece about my father as well, of where I end up really locating him, which is not in some religious story or some gravesite or something. It's something entirely different. And yeah, maybe um, having that audio piece now is a place where he's located. And for my grandfather, this documentary is a place where he's located. So yeah, maybe I can step into some of the slippage of the dissatisfaction with the traditions and rituals on the shelf and and offer something a little different. I I would love to do it. So. Well, thanks again for coming on, Jay. I couldn't have asked for a better third-time guest. It's always such a pleasure to have you on, and I'm sure you'll be on for a fourth time at some point this year. So thanks again. And I think my one final thing is I've had emotional conversations with really close friends, people I've known for decades, where they've either shared something painful or personal with me or vice versa. And even in private, talking about stuff of that nature can be really hard So I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that and say that I really appreciate you opening up with me and our audience. So thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on and yeah, allowing me to be vulnerable here. And for the audience who listened to it, thank you for allowing me to be vulnerable in your ears. Tune in next week for a conversation with Jason Crawford, founder of the nonprofit organization, The Roots of Progress. Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.